0: Hello, welcome back to Loki's Librarian. If you are new here, welcome. I am your librarian, Katrina, and this is where I am reading through the enormous library books that you see behind me, and then I give you a quick synopsis and tell you what I think about them. So, if you like books, just aren't sure what to read next, hit that subscribe button, like and share my videos, and let me know what you think in the comments. It is the last Sunday of the month, which means it is time for the next president, making this week's Book of the Week. William McKinley and His America by H. Wayne Morgan, and the accompanying cocktail is called McKinley's Delight. It was actually, um, I found it on, I think it was liquor.com, but I will certainly share the link like I always do. I feel like it was actually created for him, so that's kind of cool. It is two ounces of rye whiskey, one ounce of sweet vermouth, a teaspoon of cherry liqueur, a dash of absinthe, and a lemon twist to garnish. So let's do this. William McKinley was born January 29th, 1843 in Niles, Ohio to William McKinley Sr. and Nancy McKinley. He was the seventh of nine children and his mother had high hopes that he would become a minister in the church. Uh, so much so that when he actually won the presidency and his mother was alive, she lived to see him inaugurated. She was like in her you know, late 80s or something at that point. But as they're getting off the train to go to the the hotel they're going to stay in the night before the inauguration she was overheard saying something about how he you know could have been a bishop and her youngest son or his younger brother or something was like but mother he's president don't you see this is better than being bishop so i guess just goes to show that no matter what you do with your life you will probably disappoint your mother Anyways, William himself never had any church aspirations, quite clearly, since he went on to become president. He was a good student, but not particularly diligent and didn't really have any college aspirations uh, because money was tight. All right. Nine children. That's a lot of kids. And the Civil War broke out right when he turned 18. So he immediately enlisted in the Ohio Volunteer Regiment with his cousin. Uh, He handled himself quite well on battle, on the field of battle. Uh, He earned a couple of commendations for bravery. Um, There's one story where essentially, and I don't remember which battle, although it is in the book, the troops had not had anything to eat for 24 hours, so he commandeered a supply wagon and drove it down to the front lines for his men to eat, and that got him a commendation for bravery because he wasn't armed, he just took the wagon and went out and fed the men and had the foresight to have everything already prepped so it's like like they needed to keep like cook anything he just you know pulled up threw out some you know coffee and hardtack and then rode away and that was like gave them what they, the strength they needed to keep fighting so that was kind of brave of him he was promoted through the ranks eventually ended as a brevet major when the war was over and for the rest of his life he was called major by basically everybody who knew him they called him major Uh, When asked later in life how he should be addressed by uh, somebody who had served with him in the military, he said, Hey, you know, gosh, I've known you as a soldier. I've known you as a congressman, governor, and now you're president. How should I address you? And he responded, Call me major. I earned that. I am not so sure about the rest, which is pretty humble, actually. You know, I mean, one could certainly argue that you're a congressman and president, but he, he liked his ties to the military and was very proud of the service that he did the country. Fought on the side of the union, being from Ohio, that could have been up in the air, but he he definitely fought on the side of the union. He fought under Rutherford B. Hayes, actually. Uh, Hayes was kind of his mentor. Pretty much throughout his whole political career, Hayes mentored him. Let's see. Following the Civil War, he entered law as a profession. He studied for one year at the Albany Law School in New York before passing the bar in Ohio and set up shop in Canton, Ohio with a lawyer and former judge, George Belden, who actually approached McKinley to work as partners. I think the judge, like, tricked him into taking one of the judge's cases to see how he'd do. And then once he won his case... Actually, I don't think... I mean, he did win, but I don't think that that, that his winning was contingent on the judge offering him... A partnership. The judge wanted to see how he would handle the pressure of having this case handed to him right before it had to go to trial basically. Teaspoon. This is a stirred cocktail, so there's that. So, dum-dum-dum. January twenty fifth, 1871, he married heiress Ida Saxton, and they had two children, both of whom died in childhood, uh, which had its impact on both of them, but on Ida especially. She essentially was ill for the rest of her life after that. She never quite recovered from the tragedy of her two children's death, and she was prone to nervous fainting, hysterical spells. There's also some indication that she may have had uh, seizures, uh, epilepsy maybe. Uh, although it's not real clear if she had those prior to her children passing or if she developed them later in life as, as a result of this nervous condition. Regardless, McKinley loved his wife, and he was deeply devoted to her well-being and happiness. I mean, he always took time out of his day to check in on her, to make sure she was doing okay, and would wave at her when he walked past their house. Right, just a splash. Because I really don't like absinthe. So... He practiced law for about six years in Ohio before le- being elected to Congress, where he would serve from 1877 to 1891, 93. It was 91. Um, he was well known as being conscientious and peaceful. I mean, I mean he. Rarely got into altercations with anybody, although he could certainly be very pointed when he needed to be. Uh, He got along well with everybody. He was just a very likable man. Everybody that he met enjoyed working with him across both sides of the aisle. I mean, Democrats and Republicans got along quite well with him. Uh, and, And while serving in Congress, he earned a reputation as a protectionist. He argued adeptly for high tariff bills that would protect the financial interests of American industry. And he straddled the line between those who backed the gold standard and those who wanted to promote a silver standard by kind of pushing for bimetallism, which is where both gold and silver are used as currency at a fixed ratio to each other. Uh, So sort of like how four quarters equals one dollar, it would be similar to that. Uh, And during this time, he also built up a reputation as a solid Republican. He was known to be a trustworthy man who would not stab those who trusted him in the back. He repeatedly rejected offers to put himself on the national ticket for either, for a vice presidency, typically, in favor of those to whom he had pledged his support. And when he backed his guy, his loyalty was unswerving. And that, that earned him quite a solid reputation. That, that's a good reputation to have. And that's going to come out in just a minute. Let me stir this. So I got to get my lemon twist to garnish here. Ah, i better at this now eventually he did lose his congressional seat as a result of gerrymandering but his opponents had to really work for it i mean they, they gerrymandered his district several times prior to that and he was just such a likable guy and so well known for having the solid reputation of you know loyalty and you know ability to work with people and just talking to the people in his district regardless of whether or not they were a democrat or republican that the democrats kept voting for him regardless of how they gerrymandered so it took them a while to get him out of office but when he did lose his seat he took a few months off before jumping into a local political arena as a governor candidate as a candidate for governor of ohio which he won quite handily and he held that until 1895 when he voluntarily stepped down fully expecting to receive the republican nomination for president in 1896 which he did now part of his being well-liked and getting along with everybody and earning that loyalty and friendship came in really important when he was governor because he was almost hit with a scandal. Like, it was very close. Let's try this. Hmm. Kind of rolls over the tongue differently. You taste the rye right off the bat, but then you let it sit a minute and the vermouth kind of hits. Just the tiniest hint of cherry. You can't even taste the absinthe, so I'm not... I'm sure that it does something, like I'm sure that it interacts with the other liquors, but that's not too bad. That's not too bad. It's it's not one you chug. It's not one you, you shoot. It's definitely something you sip at and kind of savor. So when the financial panic of 1893 happened, which was a big one, um, and there were several panics through the. Consistently rocked the 1890s as a decade, but one of his friends lost everything, and unfortunately, McKinley had co-signed several banknotes for this friend. And when the friend kept presenting him with notes to sign, the the, the friend would say, "Hey," and, and the friend is in the book. I don't remember his name, but he would say, "Hey, this is just a renewal on the previous note, just in ter- ensuring the terms are still good." And uh, that is not what it was. A little embarrassed for McKinley here. As a lawyer, he should have known you always read it before you sign it. He didn't. He trusted his friend kept signing the notes, and when the dust settled, he was on the hook for upwards of $100,000, it's like somewhere between $100,000 to $150,000 in 1890s money, which would be upwards of $3 million today, so like somewhere between 3 and $3.5 and million dollars today. So, McKinley was shaken, and pretty sure that he was ruined, I mean, not just financially, I mean his yes, his wife was an heiress, but that was her her inheritance to take care of her when McKinley died. He, he had no intention of ever t- touching that money, and even though she offered it. And he's like, no, that's your money. And his friends rallied around him, bought up the bank notes, and settled the debt for him. Which, I don't know about you guys, but I don't have too many friends that would just pony up $3 million to keep my butt out of the sling if I made bad investments. So, it's a little impressive that he had people willing to do that for him. And speaks a lot to his character that they were willing to do that for him. Um his His friend Mark Hanna, who would eventually become his campaign manager, kind of coordinated that effort and and like spearheaded it and got him cleared out and also made sure that any time a newspaper man came around because of course this is going to be news, right A governor of Ohio, potential political candidate he's a well known figure. They're like, oh, whoa, how'd you get swept in the panic? Well, it, all the stories that came out basically just made him more relatable to the common man because, hey, he's losing his shirt, too, or, you know, almost did, except that friends stepped in and helped him. No government bailouts for McKinley. That was, this was all friends helping, so. And uh, McKinley was such an adept politician that he stumped for every candidate from 1880 through 1894. National, local, didn't matter. He enjoyed... Traveling, He enjoyed going out and speaking to people and doing political rallies. And that got his name out there. And as early as 1894, 1895, he was positioning himself to be the Republican candidate because he started campaigning outside of Ohio. Not campaigning officially but just going to political rallies in other states again getting his name out there and well known and it worked so well that from when he was nominated in 1896 he didn't have to leave his house I and mean, he, he literally ran a front porch campaign where people would come from hundreds of miles around to stand in his yard and listen to him talk and he would just talk from his porch um, Mark Hanna went out and did the the actual campaigning on the road everybody else came to McKinley and he won quite handily, uh, despite some pushback from the Silverites, who still wanted that free silver coinage and ran such a clean campaign that his opponent, William Jennings Bryan, congratulated him in person and offered no hard feelings. Which, I don't think that had actually been done, you know, where they're like, hey, good game, good game, you know, shake hands and everything. I, the, the only time I've actually read that mention in a book was when... Uh, was um, John Quincy Adams when he won and Andrew Jackson came into the White House and shook his hand and said congratulations. Uh, It's just not mentioned in any of the other books that I've read uh, how the the losing candidate handled it and his goodwill towards man kind of continued once he was in the White House so much so that at least one journalist compared his presidency to James Monroe and the era of good feeling. I have to close my blinds and his goodwill towards man continued once he was in the White House. It wasn't just a game to get him into the White House. He genuinely liked people and he welcomed everybody to come visit him. So he welcomed Democrat, Republican, didn't matter. You were welcome to come in. He treated everybody with equal courtesy. And the only people who might receive a chilly reception were favor seekers. Like if you wanted to come in and shake his hand and have a quick word, you know, talk about the weather, talk about the crops, whatever, he was cool. If you wanted to come in and talk to him about, hey, can you get me a job? I mean, he wasn't rude, but there would be a definite chill in the room. I mean, he, he just was real good at shutting that down and changing the topic and was less gracious if you were looking for something from him. Uh, he quickly had his cabinet in place and did what most presidents have a hard time doing, which is delegating the work thoroughly. And he, even better, he never second-guessed his cabinet members' decisions. So, the I, I mean, they would set their course, and he'd talk about it with them, but once it was decided, he basically backed his, his people's play. He's like, okay, that's how you want to handle it, let's do it. And he might have input, and his input certainly carried weight. Like, if he had something that he wanted handled in a specific way, he would say, let's do it this way, and his people would make sure it got done that way. And there was never I mean, never any contest there. The The two people who were in his cabinet that were mismatches and not good at the job was his secretary of state Sherman, William Sherman, John Sherman, John Sherman, excuse me, and his secretary of war, Russell Alger. Those were the two odd men out who were not exceptional at their jobs. And they both eventually left. So for his presidency, there were two really key issues that that came into play and were kind of the defining elements. Uh, First off was the issue of metal the the gold or the silver how are we going to back this and the second one was Cuba so the currency issue was ultimately settled by other governments namely European countries that have been flirting with the bimetallism but they ultimately decided to go on a full gold standard and this in turn forced the American Congress to put forth a gold standard bill that was promptly signed by McKinley now the next one was Cuba now, Cuba wanted independence, and ultimately this did lead to the Spanish-American War, uh, due largely to reports that Spain was treating the citizens of Cuba just abysmally. And, and not just propagandistic reports. Spain had implemented concentration camps, women and children were starving, and there, there was genuine rebellion going on in Cuba. And Spain promised to lighten the penalties for the rebels, but they never did. And in return, the rebels started rioting. And when that happened, McKinley sent the USS Maine, uh, basically a peacekeeping force, and Maine had barely arrived and sunk anchor when it was sunk itself on February 15, 1898. Now, Spain offered to conduct a joint investigation with the United States, but McKinley declined that offer and conducted its own investigation. And to nobody surprise, at least not 100 years later, Spain determined the explosion that sunk the Maine was an accident, and the United States determined that it was sabotage, and war was declared, and much fighting was done. Now, the Spanish-American War was supposed to be over Cuba. However, McKinley took the long-standing Monroe Doctrine seriously, or at least his Secretary of War, Russell Alger, did, and there was fighting in Cuba and the Philippines. Now, those two locations are nowhere near each other. They're not even in the same ocean. But we somehow ended up with both the Cuba and the Philippines as a result of the Spanish-American War. Spain didn't want to give up her colonies. They were really loath to do this. McKinley, in addition to being a capable politician in his own right, had the knack of a good leader of putting that right person in the right job, except, of course, for Secretary of State John Sherman and Secretary of War Russell Alger. I think the two people who are most key to this thing, right? Now, his treaty team did not include Sherman, but it did include his assistant secretary of state, who would go on to become Sherman's replacement, William R. Day. Sherman, I mean, he was capable of, as of sec- capable as Secretary of Treasury under Rutherford B. Hayes, and during his time as senator, had authored the Sherman Silver Act, which we discussed during Grover Cleveland book. But by the time he made Secretary of State, he was basically just ready to retire, and he was kind of this cantankerous, grumpy old man. William Day, however, was a solid choice of replacement, and served as McKinley's sec- uh, Secretary of State until McKinley's assassination. Now, The end result of the Treaty of Paris of 1899 was that the United States became a recognized imperial power. We purchased Cuba, Puerto Rico, Guam, and the Philippines from Spain for $20 million in that currency, which is approximately $731 million in modern currency. Uh, but the troubles were not over yet. Uh, Cuba wanted independence but was happy for U.S. assistance on the road to independence. The Philippines categorically declined to become a U.S. colony and switched their hostilities from Spain to the United States like that. And they were like, nope, no, 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 no. It's cool if you want to, you know, buy us and then give us freedom, but that's not what you're doing here, and we want no part of this. We're going to rebel. And once it became clear that the U.S. intended to colonize and Christianize the already Catholic nation, so that was kind of ironic, the Philippines rebelled, necessitating more troops being sent to quell the rebellion. So the Philippines became a bit of a quagmire for, for McKinley. Ultimately, Alger was deemed incompetent but not corrupt and was asked to resign from the cabinet, and McKinley replaced him with Eliu Root. Root was a lawyer, he had no, no experience in war at all. But McKinley determined that was exactly what was needed, and his gift for picking the right man was functioning again. So Root was exactly what was needed. He was, quickly able, he was able to quickly establish a working colonial government for the Philippines, which consisted of Judge Howard, William Howard Taft becoming governor of the Philippines. This, incidentally, was Taft's introduction to the stage of politics. Prior to that, he'd been a happy lawyer and a judge before being called to this federal service to act as the governor of the Philippines. So... McKinley was kind of at this nexus point in history where he just launched a lot of great careers, and those were kind of the two overwhelming issues of the day he He had the the gold the currency and the Cuba crisis, and those were both resolved in his first term and It was like no surprise that he quite handily won a second term mm-hmm. um and He had a couple other things he had you know he had to work out a trade with China he annexed Hawaii. He directed his ambassador to England to work on a treaty with Britain about building a canal across the Isthmus in South America. But overall, his administration was basically free of scandal and any really major issues. And his renomination in 1900 was a foregone conclusion. The the only difference being that his vice president for, for term two was Theodore Roosevelt. His first term VP was Garrett Hobart and Hobart passed away on November 21st, 1899. Now, after his reelection and second swearing-in, McKinley kind of took the summer off and toured the United States. Uh, he, he took his wife, he took some cabinet members, members of the press. Uh, his wife got sick. She nearly died because she, she got a... Um, she had like a a boil on her finger lance and it became infected. But she rallied and they returned to Ohio and they spent the summer basically in Ohio. Uh, visiting with friends and family, planning on how they were going to redecorate their house when his second term was up, because he categorically denied any interest in running for a third term. I, I, like, made public statements, published in the press, I'm not running a third term, I refuse to try- two, two times and I'm out. After their idyllic summer in Canton, Ohio, McKinley traveled to Buffalo, New York, for an exposition that was kind of celebrating the inventors in America. And on September 6, 1901, McKinley was shot by anarchist Leon Czolgosz and McKinley's chief of staff, George Cordelieu, had been kind of worried about security and McKinley was kind of waving him off like, who would ever want to hurt me? I don't have any enemies and he truly didn't and Cholgosh picked him because he was the president and Cholgosh was an anarchist and as an anarchist, McKinley was the figurehead of the embodiment of evil which is government and so it was just that simple I'm an anarchist, you represent the government so I have to kill you and uh, Cordell U's whole concern was that anarchists had been assassinating world leaders all over. I mean, we'd had assassinations in uh, like Austria and Russia and I think England, but I'm not going to swear to that one. But uh, like they, they just, the, the anarchists have been striking out in this way against figureheads of government all over. And so Cordell U was concerned and McKinley just didn't take that seriously because he hadn't had any real scandals to push it. Now, I mentioned, not not mentioned in, like, none of that's mentioned in the book, right? Not about the anarchist, I mean, just literally he, and I kind of respect that, that he's not giving the anarchist, you know, the murderer any real play. He's just saying point blank, he was an anarchist. He killed McKinley because McKinley was the head of government. And that's pretty much all he says. Doesn't give any more time to Leon Cholgosh, which is cool. I get it. I know a little bit more about it because when I read Michael Malice's book, The White Pill, the writings of Emma Goldman Inspired Cholgosh's attack on McKinley. I I didn't mention that during my review of Malice's book because I knew I was reading this book and I didn't want that. I didn't know if it would be discussed since I hadn't read this one. I didn't know if um, uh, Morgan would go into (coughs) what exactly led up to McKinley's assassination. But it it was the the writings of Emma Goldman had inspired Cholgosh, and Goldman was actually briefly investigated and definitely made persona non grata in social circles. Uh, Ultimately, Cholgoc was executed by uh, electrocution for the assassination on October 29th, 1901. And they did not fuck around back then. Execution was a speedy affair, especially for something so public like this. And he didn't run. He didn't even try to get away. He shot the president and then, you know, stood there and waited for them to arrest him so he could make his political statement. So McKinley was shot on September 6th and died of a gangrenous infection as a result of the bullet wound on September 14th, 1901. And he was buried in Canton, Ohio, and Ida joined him in 1907. So she lived about six years more. Uh, I think that McKinley was as good a president as anyone could have hoped for. I mean, somebody who genuinely, he didn't just talk about crossing party lines and working together. He actually did it. Um, and his word was his bond he was a man of honor and my god we don't have any of those anymore so him and Grover Cleveland are like shockingly popular in my opinion at least I'm kind of impressed with what I read about McKinley and he was just by all reports a genuinely nice man he was a likable man he was a good man he was someone that people enjoyed being around and the whole nation truly mourned him when he was murdered and like there's a definite reason why Emma Goldman lost popularity following his death, even though she was in no means responsible, right? And you're you're not responsible for how other people take what your message, all right? They're responsible for their own actions. She's certainly not responsible for it, but anyways... This was a good book I mean it outlined his life thoroughly and it laid the groundwork for just how tragic his murder was I mean at the absolute pinnacle of his life right all he had was four more years and he had retired and lived out the rest of his days quite happily with Ida in in um, Ohio um, I think McKinley was a man of his times I mean his foreign policy laid the groundwork for America's interventionist policies in the 20th century like if he hadn't Included expansion in the Pacific with the Spanish-American War. It might have been harder for Wilson to justify America's entrance into World War I. That's a future book, though. We're going to get to that one. Um, I think I rank him kind of, I don't know, third or fourth. At least he was just a good man. He was a good man who who did good things for the country, right? He he cared about the American people. He cared about the, the politics. He cared about doing the right thing. And these are things you just don't see. in in politics in the 21st century and his ability to get along with everyone regardless of party affiliation is just it's lacking, it's horrifying how divided we've become Hmm. it is ironic though he did have a definite blind spot and, and definitely an imperialistic streak because why didn't he just give Philippines their independence they wanted it, they were ready for it But he's like, nah, we paid money for you. We own the island now. Deal with it. Eh, it's a little too ironic. That's it for this week. If you liked what you saw, don't forget to subscribe. And I will see you guys next Sunday. Bye.